Well, good morning. How y'all doing this morning? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Keller. I am not one of the pastors here at the church. I am uh, one of the elders, and, and uh, we at this church believe our elders ought to be equipped to be able to teach, and so they throw me in the fire once in a while, and, and today I get the ball. So um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and, and find your way to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one, should be one in the seat in front of you there on the, on the floor. There's a bunch along the windows in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, just take that one. That's, that's our gift to you. Um, all right, so last week, Pastor Try was teaching us through an earlier part of Mark chapter 3, where Jesus, he's, he's kind of in rock star mode at this point in, in the Bible, where there's just gobs of crowds gathered around, right? Just, just gobs of people to the point that, that he feels he could be crushed if he doesn't, he doesn't kind of back off. So, so him and some of his followers go up on a mountaintop, and at that point, that's where he selects his 12. He, he kind of anoints his 12 disciples on this mountaintop. And, and, and it's a picture of, of how God orchestrates his kingdom. It wasn't like we would expect. If, if we're thinking to ourselves, okay, we want to spread the word as, as far and as wide and as rapidly as we can, we're going to focus on the crowds. But Jesus didn't do that. He focused on, on small numbers. You know, his, his idea was if I pour into the life of these few individuals, and, and, and they actually get my heart, then that builds a better foundation to spread this. And so Jesus invested into these 12 men, and we saw last week, as Pastor Tri taught us through that, that they received it well, and they committed to it, and they dedicated themselves to following um, what, what Christ was offering them. So, so that created this kind of foundation of where the church would be built off of. So today, we're going to pick up where he's done anointing his 12 up on the mountaintop. He's going back down to where the crowds are and in returning home. So we're going to pick it up here in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And this is uh, what Carl had already read, but we're going to kind of walk through this kind of slowly. So verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's a pretty significant crowd, Right? If you, can't even, if you can't even take a break to eat or, or if there's, you bring food out and it just disappears that fast because there's so many people, that's, that's a significant crowd. So this is, like, this is like more than the Jonas Brothers kind of crowd, all right? Or, or some of you, more than the Beatles kind of crowd. This is a substantial amount of people gathered around Jesus. And when his family heard it, when they heard about, about how significant this was, that he couldn't even eat, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind, right? So we see later, this is most likely his mother and his brothers. They're here, look, Jesus is, you know, he's, he's gone off the deep end, right? Jesus is, he, dude's off his rocker right now. We need to go rescue him from himself, is what they're thinking, right? They only know Jesus as this little boy who grew up in their home, right? Now, his mother has seen him turn water into wine, right? But, but at this point, they're thinking, all right, the water to wine thing was pretty cool, Jesus, right? But, but you've got to come back down to earth here. We, we, we've got to, I mean, they're, they're thinking intervention for their boy Jesus, right? And they don't understand who he truly is. But what's interesting is no one on earth knows him better than them, most likely, right? I mean, he's pretty early in his ministry, so his disciples are just starting to get a picture of who he is. But it's his family who you would think know him best. We see in this passage, they don't really know who he is at all. So they were saying Jesus is out of his mind. And then we've got some more people critiquing Jesus here. So verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, 
So, so these scribes coming down from Jerusalem, these are like varsity squad Pharisees, all right? These are the Pharisees who know the law the best. They, they are the experts of the experts. So we know that they've been kind of keeping their eye on Jesus. And if we think back a few weeks ago when we were in uh, Mark chapter 2, where Jesus was having dinner, he was dining and, and laying back with the tax collectors and the, the sinners, and these scribes were calling him out and saying, what in the world is he doing? Why, why would he associate with these people, right? These are the same people. These are the same scribes that are keeping their eye on Jesus. They're really um, trying their best to keep him in check. They are threatened by him. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So just saying, Jesus, is, he's just demon-possessed right now. This Beelzebub. So some, some of your translations might say Beelzebub. So this would be, um, tradition would have it that this is actually a fallen angel. Some traditions hold this is, a, this is one of the fallen angels, kind of a high up in the hierarchy of, of Satan's staff. Um, some might say this is just a reference to Satan generically here. Uh, this is actually uh, the same... The same root word is a, a god the Philistines, so Goliath and his crew, would have worshipped back in the Old Testament. So a lot of people would subscribe that Beelzebul would be the demon who is kind of responsible for possessing, for like entering into people's bodies and possessing them. But in any case, they're attributing Jesus' actions to the work of Satan here. He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Verse 23, and he called them, this is Jesus, and he called them to him and said in parable. So, so I can see this, and we see, we see in another account, we're going to jump over to Matthew here in a little bit, we see another account that he didn't actually hear this, he didn't actually hear them say this, he just knew they were thinking this. So I can see just like, hey, come here, come here, look, come here guys, let me, let me talk to you, we're going to chat about this, right? How can Satan cast out Satan, right? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus is saying, look, guys, seriously, Satan cannot rise up against Satan. Why would he do that? If you're going to come at me, Come at me with something better than this. This doesn't even make sense, guys. You gotta try harder, all right? Try harder, scribes. He goes on to say here that um, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus let these guys know why would Satan rise up against Satan? If if I mean that would be that would be cutting himself off at the knees. Why would he choose to do that? Why would he possess me to take himself out? Guys, that doesn't make any sense. But what is happening here, Jesus tells him, what is happening is Satan is in trouble, right? Satan is the strong man in this illustration. Satan is the strong man. And he's the, the, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world we see referenced many times. And Jesus is saying, look, the only way you can, the only way you can take Satan out and rescue people from him. So when we, say, when we see that reference to plundering his house, what we know here is what Jesus has been doing is releasing people from, from being possessed by Satan. In fact, when we look in Matthew here in a moment, we're going to see that this specific uh, observation of these Pharisees where they say, no, he's just demon-possessed, that's actually specifically in response to Jesus having just 
release the man from demon possession. Right? So Jesus is saying, look, Satan's got these guys captive in his house. And I am plundering his house. I am setting these guys free from Satan's grasp. And the only way to do that is to bind up the strong man. And in Luke, we see in this uh, parallel passage that it takes a stronger man to bind the strong man. So Jesus is that stronger man. And he's telling them, it's, it's by my strength that I can do this, not by the power of Satan. Then he goes on in verse 28, and it gets to kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Right? Okay, so from the top, we see Jesus' family concerned about Jesus the man, right? Because they know Jesus in the flesh and bones. They know this guy who grew up with them, who ate with them, who, who skinned his knee when he fell down, who was human. They knew that guy, right? And everyone assumes that's who he is. He's that guy in flesh and bones. And as Jesus goes through this, and he's introducing this idea of his strength beyond that human person to the Pharisees, what he says in the end here is, it's not an unclean spirit powering me. It's the Holy Spirit powering me. And that's what his family didn't understand, right? They didn't understand that there was a supernatural power, a deity in Jesus that was enabling him to do the ministry that he was called to do. All right. Now, when I read that passage to you, what stands out in your minds? This, this last bit about whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but has an, uh, an eternal sin. What stands out in your minds when we go through this passage? I'm thinking probably like most people, it's this idea of an eternal sin, right? That captivates a lot of people's attention when we get to that part of the Bible. And what I want us to see today is that the fact that there's an eternal sin that Jesus references here, that is not the point. He wants us to take away from this. There's something more important that he wants us to take away from this. We don't want to get focused on that. We want to get focused on the more um, significant message that Jesus has for us. The point here is not the unforgivable sin. The point here is the significance and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of this passage, and that's what we're going to focus on today. I told you we're going to jump over to Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, jump over to Matthew. uh, Matthew chapter 12. And this, again, is is the same same story, right? Except this is Matthew's account of the same facts that happened. So in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew's version has more details than John Mark's version. So Matthew's got a few more things included here. We're not going to get into many of those details, But if you see in verse 22, what I was telling you before, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And that's what triggered these Pharisees to say, ah, he's just possessed by a demon. So if we go down to verse 31 in this same chapter 12, we see Jesus add here, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? The Son of Man is Jesus. That's, 
We see throughout Scripture, that's a term he uses to refer to himself frequently, but typically is to refer to himself as the man, the human, right? We know Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. He's both these things. When we see this reference to Son of Man, typically that's him referring to himself here on earth. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, this is, a, this is kind of a complicated thing to wade through. Because we don't really see this idea um, of, of sinning against the Holy Spirit being an unforgivable sin really throughout the rest of the New Testament. There's similar texts. We see in Hebrews um, and in Corinthians this idea of grieving the Spirit, uh, but there's still hope in those. So this is a a little bit of a unique text here, but we're going to do our best to walk through it. All right, so we see a clear distinction here, right, between sin against Jesus and sin against the Holy Spirit. We see it, Jesus make this clear distinction. Sin against Jesus or blasphemy against Jesus, there's forgiveness available to that person. Blasphemy or sin against the Holy Spirit, Jesus says there is no forgiveness. Now, make, make note here that he does not say specifically that if these people seek forgiveness, they'll be denied. He just says there won't be forgiveness for them. So we'll get into that subtlety in a little bit here. We see some examples of both of these going on in this passage. So let's go back to his family who says, Jesus is out of his mind, right? If we, sitting in this room, start talking about Jesus as being off his rocker, right, we would certainly consider that as blasphemy against our Savior, right? So that is, by definition, a blasphemy against the Son of Man. But there's hope for that kind of sin, right? We see further on in Matthew chapter 12, go down with me, uh, you see in, in verse 38, the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, show us a sign then. He says, I'm not going to show you a sign. I've already given you a sign. The, 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 the man Jonah came and he ministered. That's your sign. He was in the belly of the fish for three days, just like the son of man's going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. There's your sign. If you're not getting it, you're just not going to get it, right? But then he goes on to say, In verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Key in here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. This generation meaning you guys, you scribes and Pharisees. will rise up with you clowns and condemn you. For they repented, the men of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation. That's most likely referring to the queen of Sheba uh, back in the Old Testament. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. That's Jesus. He's referring to himself here. Jonah is, is what we call a, a type of Christ. He's a, a picture of the Messiah to come. That's Jesus here fulfilling that. Solomon was a son of David, where Jesus is the son of David. He is one who's prophesied to come and fulfill 
that, be that Messiah. He is the greater one to come. So what we see about the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, these are, these are, these are not God's people, right? These are, these are people who were corrupt sinners. These are people who worshiped other gods, who had no taste for, for the God whatsoever. But God worked in their lives. God sent this, this messenger to them, and they responded, and they repented, and they earnestly sought God, right? So we don't really see exactly, in fact, when you see the Old Testament account of the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon, we don't really see a clear picture of, of, of repentance in that, but we gather that from what Jesus is saying about it here. So there is a repentance of their hearts because they are seeking God. They are responding to God's lead. So Jesus is contrasting that with these scribes and the Pharisees that he's talking to. They are not following God's lead. They are following God's law the best they think they can to check the box, to be that, that person. But when they're seeing the activity of the Spirit leading in their community, they're totally rejecting it. And that's the contrast. Here's the distinction between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And this is why this matters. The work of Jesus, the work of Jesus has been accomplished, right? Jesus did what he came to do. Jesus had a specific role. And when I say Jesus, I'm talking about, I'm talking about his incarnate self, right? Because we know, we know God the Son has existed eternally. It was part of creation, it was, was speaking all this into to existence. We know he's had a, a role and a function throughout all of eternity and, and will continue. But when we talk about Jesus' mission, I mean, when God says, okay, I've got broken people and I need to send a Savior and Jesus comes to earth in his flesh and bones, he's got a specific mission. That mission is to, to speak into the life of his disciples to create this church, but then also, and more importantly, to be that atonement for our sins. So his work has been accomplished, right? He came to the earth in the flesh. He lived a perfectly pure life. He died as an atonement or a sacrifice for our sins once for all, doing away with the law system. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And all that has been accomplished, whether you believe it or not, right? It's done. He did what he came to do. That sacrifice has been made. And he's, he's, he's risen, right? He's done what his calling was to do. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, his work is still being accomplished. He's still at work in our lives. The Holy Spirit, like, like the Son, has many functions. But in our lives individually, he has very specific functions. Turn your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16. So Jesus is preparing to depart. He's preparing for his death, and, and he's telling his disciples that, hey, look, I'm going to go away, and, and um, I'm not going to be here with you guys anymore. They're a little discouraged by that. But then he goes on to tell them, nevertheless, so this is verse 7, 
John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Stop right there. He's going to come to convict of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus is telling them, they do not believe in me. These people, they're not going to, they, they won't believe me. I'm just a man talking to them. That's all they see. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit that will convict them to understand who I am. He goes on to say, he'll convict them because I, uh, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. So he's going to convict them of this righteousness because Jesus is departing. Jesus is the only one righteous, not not, not any man, not any of us, not the Pharisees, not Peter, not, not anyone in this room. We're not righteous, but we get to be righteous positionally, right? So we, we're not going to be righteous. But when God looks down at us, once we accept Christ as our Savior, we put on his righteousness. Now, we are not righteous, but God sees that. We, we, we wear this positional righteousness of Christ as his follower. And we get to hang on to that. But we wouldn't understand that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to wear that righteousness of Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Verse 11. He will convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So, again, Satan will be judged for what he is doing, what he has done. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll understand that judgment and discern that. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you. This is Jesus continuing to talk to his disciples. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's by the power of this Holy Spirit that we can be guided into truth, that we can be guided into a, a, a righteous understanding of who Jesus is, right? That takes our knowledge of Jesus from what his family, what his mothers and his brothers knew as this kid, right? Little, little Gigi who grew up skinning up his knee, right? That's the kid they knew. It, it, takes, it takes that knowledge to this knowledge of his righteousness, of the truth about who he truly is. That can only happen by the, the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the power of the Holy Spirit to us, the essential uh, triggering mechanism, if you will, to get us to that point of having any hope to understand who Jesus is to us. Without an understanding of who Jesus is to us, there cannot be salvation. You see, Jesus' work, remember we talked about Jesus' work has been accomplished. He's, he's died on the cross He's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, and he sits on the right hand of the throne of God. And that means nothing to us if we don't have the Holy Spirit convicting us to understand that and to seek that. What Jesus is saying here in today's passage is that our hearts can be hardened to a point 
of robbing the Holy Spirit of that blessing to do that in our lives. You cannot come to salvation without submitting to the work of the Spirit. If you choose to be unwilling to submit to the Spirit's work, you choose a path for which there is no salvation. That's what Jesus is telling these these Pharisees. If you continue to harden your heart, and if you are unwilling to recognize the Spirit of God at work and to submit to that, you will never get to a point where you can repent. Without repentance, there is no salvation. But without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there can be no repentance. So how does this work in our lives? All right, this Bible you've got in your hand. Anyone here got it all figured out? Got a complete and full understanding of every word of it? No, of course not, right? There's things we misunderstand. Sometimes we just don't get it right? Sometimes we think we get it, right? How many of you like had this full grasp on your theology, right? Until you didn't. <laughs> and some, some have you're like, oh, I've been thinking this my whole life. And I realized that was really stupid of me, right? Oftentimes, maybe, maybe you're like, man, that kind of, God would never, God would never allow that kind of behavior in his kingdom, right? And then maybe you come to the realization, oh, maybe I'm being legalistic. Or maybe the, maybe the opposite. Maybe, man, God, God would be totally okay with this. My God's all loving. He's fine with this, right? And then you come to the realization that well, God's, God's holier than that, right? God, God is narrower um, in his holiness, his righteousness. And, and sometimes our theology, our understanding of who God is changes. And that's good, right? That's good that that happens. Tim Keller wrote that, uh, uh, let me see if I can find the quote here. If God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Right? How many of you have ever been there? Like, like where you just think you, you've got it all figured out. Like, I, I understand. I know what is right to God. I just know it, and I know my God wouldn't. He, I, he wouldn't. He wouldn't allow that or provide that or whatever. And, and you, you create this theology that feels good to you. You create this theology that aligns with what feels right to you. You're just being your own little God. And I got news for you: you stink at being God. Right? You're just not going to cut it, right? But, but what Jesus is telling us here is there's grace for that. It's okay to miss the mark. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to misunderstand. That doesn't mean we sit in that. What that means is there's hope for forgiveness for that, right? It doesn't mean it's fine just to leave it like it is, but we can grow in our misunderstanding. We can become informed. We can become enlightened. And, and draw near to the truth of who Jesus is, who Christ is. So when we mess up, when we have a false understanding of who Jesus is or, or God's plan for our lives, there's still grace for that. There's still grace for that, so long as we're willing to submit to the spirits convicting us of our missteps. How many of us, likewise, sometimes we, sometimes we get theology wrong, our understanding of who God is wrong, and sometimes we just make bad choices, right? Sometimes we sin against this sacrifice of Christ in a way that we are the one who essentially puts him on that cross, right? Through our actions, through our choices. Anyone here make bad choices? Good. Anyone here make just full-hearted, bad, sinful choices even after submitting yourself to Christ? A bunch of hands. And where there's not hands, you guys are a bunch of liars, right? <laughs> okay. 
It happens. That, that's, that's the struggle. That's this process of sanctification. Christ understands that, and he's telling these Pharisees, there is grace for that. He's telling us, there is grace. I have grace for you, because I understand you're going to mess up. You're going to make bad choices. You're going to make bad decisions. I don't want that for you. I want you to, to grow and mature and, and follow me and become like me. But in that process, you're going to make mistakes. But I have grace for that. There is forgiveness for that available to you. There's nothing, there's nothing we have done in our lives, there's nothing we're going to do in our lives as far as making bad choices or sinful steps that's going to surprise God, right? You're not going to surprise him with, with the level of depravity of your sin. I promise you, you're not going to surprise him. And even in that, even knowing that, he's got grace and he's got forgiveness. Remember what Tri said last week? He says this quite a bit, right? If, if you knew, if you knew what God knows about Tri or even me, you would not be here listening to us, right? But likewise, like Tri said, if, if we knew what God knows about you, we would have locked the door this morning, right? But even knowing all that, God still has forgiveness available to you, wherever you're at. It's when we refuse the Spirit, right? So there is forgiveness available to you. But what Jesus is saying here is, if you, however, absolutely refuse the Spirit and reject and harden your heart to this idea of you being in need of a Savior, that's when, that's when you run into trouble, right? That's when you're not allowing the Spirit to convict you, to work in you. And that's what Jesus is warning these Pharisees of. Now, probably a lot of you, when we, when we go through this passage, you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I hope it's not me. <laughs> I hope this whole eternal sin thing is, I, I, I just know it. I just know I did that thing. That's the eternal sin. I, I, I just know that that's me. Oh man, I'm in trouble, right? Some of us think that way. Some of us automatically assume like, man, I know there's forgiveness. I know there's grace, but not for me, not for what I've done. If there's an eternal sin to be committed and it cuts you off from Satan, that's probably me. That's probably me. Some of us are there. Some of us think that way. And here's the good news. If that is troubling to you, then this isn't about you, right? If, if, if you are sweating this idea of, man, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I, do, I, I hope I didn't sin against the Holy Spirit. Then you are not sinning against the Holy Spirit, right? That's the whole point. The, the people who are guilty of this are the people who just don't, don't care. It's the, it's the idea of, of sinning against the Holy Spirit, of grieving the Holy Spirit in this way, doesn't even cross their mind. Their, their heart is so hardened to the idea of some kind of authority of the Spirit over their life. That, that authority has no place in their life whatsoever. It never crosses their mind. They don't sweat it whatsoever. Those are the people who are in trouble, right? If you're thinking to yourself, man, I hope it's not me. You're good, right? That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean you're good where you're at. What that means is there's hope for you. That means there's forgiveness available to you. You haven't crossed all, over that line of no return. 
I think we're tempted when we read this. I think we're tempted to see, uh, when, I, when I say read this, I mean this, this Mark passage where Jesus is telling them about this, this idea of uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think when we read that, we have a tendency, uh, we're tempted, and maybe you learned it this way, maybe you see it this way, but we're, we're tempted to kind of see Jesus telling them when he, when he says to the Pharisees, you unholy Pharisees, you're going to hell, right? And the rest of you, you might be right behind him. Some of us see it as a warning like that, and that's, that's, that's not what this is. I don't think that's what this is. I think instead, it's more like Jesus is telling them, you poor, sad souls, if you only knew, if you only knew the depth of the love your God has for you, if you only knew the passion this Holy Spirit possesses for your redemption, if you only knew how much you need this, man, it would change your life. It would change your life. But they're clueless to that. They're clueless to the idea of needing saving. They feel like they've checked all the boxes. They don't need anything. They're God's chosen people, and they're obeying the law, a law that, for, in large part, they've constructed themselves, Right? They think that's their saving grace. They don't see any need for any kind of redemption beyond that. And that's why they're in trouble. You see, I think this is a message of hope, not condemnation. Oftentimes, Jesus will have these exchanges with the Pharisees. And I don't think it's so much about the Pharisees as it is about us in the future. Now, now it is... Now, Jesus is, he's, not, he's never going to waste words, right? He's more efficient than that. So when he's communicating with the Pharisees, he is talking to them for their benefit. And I sure hope that some of them changed their hearts. And I know some, like Nicodemus, I know some did, some Pharisees, some scribes did come to a saving grace understanding of who Jesus was. But I think when we see this, what we can take from this, it's more about Jesus uh, ordaining this exchange to happen for our benefit than the Pharisees, Right? So what we get from this exchange is a message of hope, not a message of condemnation. It's not, a, it's not a, man, don't do this eternal sin like the Pharisees. Rather, it's a message of there's power in the Holy Spirit to bring you into this, and I want you into this, and there's forgiveness for you, and there's hope for you. Jesus said, I'm, uh, I came for the healthy, or I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He told these, these same scribes that just a few uh, chapters ago. And, and I think when we see this exchange, this is him coming for, this is him having this exchange with the Pharisees for us, for the sick, for those who need this message of hope and forgiveness. So what does this mean to you? It means you have hope. You sitting here today, you have hope for forgiveness. There's, you've all got mess in your life, right? You've all got decisions you've made that you regret. You've all got sin in your life. And, and, and many of you have come to grips with that and have sought forgiveness and, and sought justification before Christ through forgiveness and repentance. But there's still failure along the way. Some of you have never come to that point of understanding this idea of redemption and the need in laying your sins at the foot of the cross. 
But we've all got this mess in our lives. So, I mean, is it, I don't know what it is. Do you regret entering into that relationship with someone that maybe doesn't honor God? Do you regret picking up the bottle or, or that pipe the first time? Do you regret clicking on that website or the, maybe the shady way you got a business deal done? Do you regret tormenting or abusing someone God entrusted to your care? Are you broken over the way you've mistreated a spouse? What is it in your life that has, has grabbed a hold of you and is tormenting you? And that you've felt in the past, man, there's no way out of this. There's, there's, I'm just going to live with this hate of my own sin forever, right? I just heard on the radio the other day, this guy sharing his testimony where he said he was, he was kind of captivated in this life of... Uh, uh, of, of sin and lust and, and, and internet pornography for over 27 years. And so it was just this endless cycle of, of regret and seeking forgiveness and going right back into it and regret and seeking forgiveness. He just felt like that was going to be his life. Just couldn't escape it until the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and changed the desire of his heart. And he feels regenerated, right? I know many of you in here have experienced that through other addiction, through relationships, and, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, what Jesus was telling us in this passage is, look, my mother, my brothers, they're, they're kind of right. If I'm doing this on my own, man, I need help. I need someone to come get me. But I'm not. I'm doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I don't need anybody's help beyond that. So if you're feeling like you've got this sin choking you, if you have this feeling that maybe, maybe there's just something in your life that's incomplete, maybe you're just missing the point, maybe you're just broken, praise God. Praise God, because that's the Holy Spirit introducing himself to you. That's, that's what your hope looks like. It starts with that. It starts with this, this understanding of the depravity of your sin, that you are not good enough by yourself to overcome this. Just like Jesus, the man, if he was just man, he couldn't have done it. But because he had the power of the Holy Spirit to guide him, to keep him holy, to overcome this, to sustain his calling, he has hope. That's what we have. We have hope in the Holy Spirit. All right. That's not to say there's not teeth to the warning, right? Some of you in here are sitting here thinking to yourself, what am I even doing here, right? I don't need this. I, I mean, I'm smart enough to know that I don't need this. I can rely on my own intellect and my pride in my intellect to figure this out on my own. I don't need, I don't need a whimsical spirit to, to guide me into truth. I can figure it out. I'm a smart person. Some of you are there. God help you. God help you. Because that's, that's who this warning is for. There's teeth to this warning. So here's the point. I told you the point is not that there's an eternal sin. Here's the point. The point is that God sees a broken, fallen world in need of salvation. He sends his holy, eternal son to earth as a man named Jesus. Jesus walks around on this earth calling disciples, calling followers to him. He pours himself into these followers, right? Till they understand his heart. Jesus takes these guys to a mountaintop and anoints them as his followers. And that gives us hope that we too can be those followers. Jesus, as was his ordained purpose, our living hope, he dies on a cross. 
He is raised in three days and he eventually returns to see um, the right hand of God. That same son then sends his spirit to touch our lives, to empower us to respond to his calling, to understand the truth of who Christ is to us and our need for him to save us. That's the point, is that the Holy Spirit has come to empower us to have hope, to give us that hope of an understanding of who Jesus is and our need for Jesus in our lives. By the power of that same spirit, we can know salvation. We can overcome addiction. We can restore broken relationships. We can find hope in the hopeless. We can find healing from sickness. We experience peace from mental illness. We can overcome death. We can enjoy eternity in the presence of our holy God. That's the point of this passage. That's the point. We have hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for the way you love us, for the way you give us your word, for the power of your word and for the power of your spirit to come reveal its truth to us, that we don't have hope outside of your lordship, of your guidance, of your spirit empowering us to see truth and to know truth and to know you, God. We pray, Father, that you would give us a right understanding of you, that we might worship the true you, the real you, the perfect version of you, God, that we might have that hope and experience that joy. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would change our hearts, change our lives, and empower us to pursue you, to, to seek you earnestly, like we saw the Ninevites and, and the Queen of Sheba do, to, to, to seek your truth, God, that we might have hope in that, and that we might love and enjoy and uh, be captivated by the power of your spirit in our lives, God. In your name we pray. Amen.